Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. If you have a Bible, why don't you get to Acts chapter 1. If you're a guest, we are in our fall series, the book of Acts. We will be hanging out here until Thanksgiving time, and uh, then we're going to actually spend a little bit more time on the other side of the new year in it. So we're going to spend a good chunk of time, excited to see what God's going to do. But uh, I'm going to read our text for the day. Uh, But first, I'm just going to tell you a quick story. My son, uh, Noah, just started playing actual competitive soccer, and his first game was yesterday. So my wife and I had kind of a surreal moment. That's also why I've got a sunburn that goes right across here, because I had a toboggan on. And and he was all excited about it, playing for Madison FC with T-Bone, Tony's boy, and... uh, and, you know, thinks he play, is playing for Manchester United and uh, very excited, very amped up, letting me know all the things that he was going to do to the other team. And uh, we drove out to Wanakee and got ready and, uh, you know, had our coffee and our meal and all that and ready to, to not make a fool of ourselves and have dad be yelling and all those kind of deals, which went so-so. But that's a different story. Um, final score, 13 to 0. His team was the 0. Yeah, they got smashed. I'm pretty sure that they had a 17-year-old. He had like a full-grown beard playing. Uh, but uh, yeah, they got absolutely, absolutely demolished. So that was a bummer. He was a little deflated. Anyone had a 13 to nothing week this week? No? No one? A couple people? All right. All right. Well, I'm going to read God's Word, and then I'm going to pray for you and us in this time, and uh, pray for Noah that his ego does not properly heal, okay? (laughs) And uh, we will trust God's grace in that regard. Acts chapter 1, our text for the day is actually pretty lengthy, so I'm going to do a little bit of hopping around, but I'm going to have you stand up so that we can read it together, and then I'm going to pray. So follow along with me, Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, and you'll have to, Dave, you'll just have to follow along with me as best as you can. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, and a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all of these were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. From 15 to 21, Peter kind of chronicles for us the death of Judas Iscariot, how he hung himself, and when his body fell out of the noose, it burst and the field was named after it. Let's go down to verse 21. So the men of the men who have accompanied us, this is Peter speaking, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become with us, witness to his, that being Jesus' resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered of the eleven apostles. Chapter 2 and verse 1, we're going to 
verse 8. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was speaking to them or hearing them in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Dr. Luke who chronicles for us the birth of this community that we are still a part of, formed out of the blood of Jesus called the church. And God, I pray today that you would challenge us with what we see, that you would form us by your grace and for your purposes in this time, in this place, as you did in that time, in that place. God, I pray that you would do so, so that the young and the doubting and the confused could have their faith strengthened just as Theophilus God, that you would do something that only you can do, that your name would be made great in the city of Madison, and that your glory and your renown would be spread by us, your humble people, so that people would become a part of your kingdom and so that we could rejoice in it. God, would you accomplish these things and begin to plant seeds of what you want this church to be for your glory and our joy. And in your name we all say, Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So, because we're only two weeks into this, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a recap of what's gone on. Uh, Jesus in the Gospels has been wrongly accused. He's been crucified on a cross. He lays in a tomb for three days and he resurrects three days later bodily and uh, appears before his disciples and spends 40 days training and discipling and teaching and proving that he is in fact Uh, resurrected to his disciples and then you come to Acts chapter 1 and he walks them about three quarters of a mile outside of Jerusalem and he says guys it's time for me to go and it's time for you to go on mission proclaiming my message and my person and my work first to Jerusalem then to Samaria, Samaria and Judea and then to the uttermost parts of the earth and he ascends into heaven God sends two angels down to kind of jumpstart the disciples, and we find them in Acts chapter 12, having gone back to Jerusalem to wait for the appearance, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But in between Acts chapter 11, and Act, or Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, and Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, you have about a three-quarter of a mile walk. And I would have loved to have been on that walk. There was a handful of people uh, connected to that, the 11 apostles as well as the mother of Jesus and some of the women who had served and led in Jesus' ministry. And they're walking along and they've just had this incredible experience. They've watched Jesus ushered into heaven on a cloud. They've been standing, mouth gaping, looking up into the heavens and, and two angels come down and say, what are you looking at? And it's time to get busy. He's not coming back now. He is coming back soon, but he left you something to do. Your plan A, there is no plan B. Get busy. And so I imagine as they're walking along on this dirt road, they're talking about what they saw and what they think and how they feel and what God told them to do, which is essentially this, just a little small plan of change the entire known world, all of you. 
just go do it. And I imagine that they felt pretty overwhelmed. I imagine that they weren't exactly sure how they were going to do it. And I imagine that Peter had a bunch of options and James told him he was stupid. And John said, why do you always got to argue with each other? I imagine that the mother of Jesus came alongside them and gave him a noogie and probably not that. I'm getting a little too much. But I, I would have loved to have just heard all the energy and all of the tension that went into that as they were trying to just follow Jesus and obey him and do what he had called him to do. We know that they get back to Jerusalem, that they go into an upper room, and they essentially begin to implement their understanding of what God had called them to do and how he had called them to do it. And I want you to see the way that he does. But before we do that, I want to remind you of our mission statement for this book, and it's this. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, is writing to his friend Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is uh, probably an official in the Roman government. He's a young believer, and like most young believers, he's got questions and doubts and concerns. Did I really fall in love with this Jesus guy? Is he really the real thing? Did I make the biggest mistake of my life? Am I going to look like a fool? And Dr. Luke writes him one letter that is two volumes, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and it says that he did so so that Theophilus could be certain of the things that he had been taught. And so here's how I want you to understand the book that we're looking at. Luke has a friend who has questions about his faith, and the way that Luke answers him is by saying, look at the church. If you look at the church and see what's going on in the church, you will be certain in your beliefs about Jesus. Now let me tell you why I think that that's important. A man by the name of Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. And I don't really care what Gandhi thinks, but I care what a lot of you think. And I know that in the wake of the history of this church, there are people who have been wounded, who have been displaced, who were a part of this community and now a part of nothing. And I know that there are people in Madison who are not Christians simply because of their experience at church. And my prayer through this book is that God would correct that in this church. And that this would become the kind of church that whenever people say, you know, I just have doubts about Christianity, someone could say, I do too, but that Damascus Road church has something going on that I can't explain. And that those people could be made certain about the things that they have been taught about Jesus because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in this community. It breaks my heart whenever I hear people who don't love Jesus because of how they've been treated by Christians. It shouldn't be. And so my prayer is that God would catch us up in a work that he's doing here in Madison and this time in this place, the same way that he did it in Jerusalem in the book of Acts and in Antioch in the book of Acts, that you can still have questions about Jesus, but if you look at Damascus Road, you go, I don't have an answer for that. Amen? Hopefully that amen will get a little bit louder as we move along. I was kind of lukewarm. Yeah, yeah. So Luke, we're warming up. All right, fair enough. So Luke is going to chronicle for us the response of the people of God, normal people of God, as they've been, had placed in front of them this mission to reach the ends of the earth. And I want you to see the first thing that they do in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James 
And all of these in one accord were devoting themselves to what? To prayer. Were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A little while ago, I went to uh, uh, kind of a mini conference and I had to take a bunch of personality tests. And uh, what my personality uh, tests said to me is that I tend to be a uh, act and then think, shoot and then ask kind of personality. And uh, it's interesting because I imagine that if I was on the walk with the disciples back to Jerusalem, I would have had a lot of strategic plans. A lot of ways that we could start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and then Samaria. And maybe you're kind of like me, but that's not what the disciples do. They get back and certainly they have plans and certainly they have opinions and certainly they have ideas. But the very first thing that they do is they pray. Let me ask you a question. Where did the disciples learn that that should be their first response? Jesus. Last night I googled Jesus praying in the Gospels. And I found some pretty incredible studies. Jesus prayed all the time. Jesus got up early and he went off to pray. He stayed up late and he went off to pray. He prayed before ministry. He prayed during ministry. He prayed after ministry. He prayed for people. He prayed about people. He prayed to people. Jesus was praying all the time. The disciples had learned to pray first and act second from Jesus. This is the proper response. Let me tell you why it's the proper response. The disciples understood that the Holy Spirit was going to be coming. They didn't have him yet. And so they were trying to position themselves in such a way to be best prepared when the Holy Spirit showed up. And they did something that's very important that always accompanies prayer. Prayer is at its most elemental level an act of humility. It's at its most elemental level an act of of humility. Let me give you an example. I have three kids, Noah, 13, nothing you heard about him, Emma, my princess who's super sweet, and Isaiah, who's my comedian with a big head. (laughs) I pray for them every single night, as long as they've been alive, that God would save them. There are many hopes and many dreams that I have for my kids. None of them surpasses my desperate need that God saves them by his grace. And I pray that to God for one singular reason. And that reason is that I know that I can't save them. No matter what I do, no matter what I do, God, by his grace, has to save my kids. And so every night for the last seven and a half years, I have prayed for some little person in my house that God would save them. And every single time I do, I'm saying to God, if you don't, I can't. So I'm asking you to do what I can't do because you're God and I'm not. The disciples had put, been, had placed in front of them a mission that they knew they couldn't accomplish. And so they went to somebody that they knew could. God, if you don't do what you just told us to do, it isn't going to happen. And so in humility and independence, we're going to pray to you because we know that we need you to do it. Some of the reason, guys, that we struggle to pray is that we're busy, is that it can be awkward, and is that we think we got it. Some of the reason that we struggle to pray is because at an intuitive and spiritual level, we understand that every time that we say, dear God, we're saying, I can't. 
Every time that we say you are, we're saying I'm not. Every time that we say God would you, we're saying God. And that level of dependence and that level of humility is awkward and uncomfortable and painful for those of us who like to be comfortable and in control. And it also gives a little bit of a different framework when Jesus says something like pray without ceasing. It may be that he doesn't mean walk around saying, dear God, dear God, dear God. Instead, walk around saying, God, if you don't, I can't, so you must. This posture of humility, this posture of dependence, this posture of prayer. And as it pertains to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit, I hear lots of different ideas about what a person needs to be for the Holy Spirit to use them. And there's lots of debate and lots of mystery around that. But I can tell you one way that you can assure the Holy Spirit will not use you. And that is if you do not think you need him. Humility is the absolutely necessary ingredient to a profound work of the Holy Spirit. And God will not come to those who say he is not welcome. He will not come and save those who say he is not welcome, and he will not come and use those who say he is not needed. If we are going to become the kind of church that many of us have never experienced, the kind of church that doubters find reassurance and certainty in, we must be a people of humility that are driven to pray, or it will not happen. It will not happen. The disciples, having followed the example of Jesus, understanding the totality of their mission and the inadequacy of their ability to accomplish it, sit down in an upper room and they pray in three ways. Number one, they pray together. They don't go off in their separate corners with their prayer journal. They sit in the middle of their room, they get on their face and they say, oh God, if you don't do this for us, it will not happen. What are you praying for with someone? What are you understanding is so beyond your grasp that not only do you have to ask God for it, but somebody else has to ask God for you? That's a level of dependence that, listen, we tend to want to avoid, but it's absolutely necessary to the Christian faith. Can I tell you, if you don't have anything else going, anything going on in your life that you think, not only do I need to pray about this, but I need them to pray for me in this, it probably means that you aren't trusting God for much of anything. And my fear is that many of us, not all of us, but many of us are very comfortable in our Christian faith, are very comfortable in our middle class income, are very comfortable in the state of life that God has by his grace brought us to, that the idea of being so dependent by saying, you have to pray for me in this regard, is completely foreign to us. These men and women were brought together in the complete and utter dependence of God calling them to something that they had no ability to do and it drove them to pray together. Number two, they prayed the same thing. They prayed together and they prayed the same thing. Number three, it says they were devoted to praying and that word means that they were persistent in praying. I always like to think of when God says that we should stand at the door and knock. That word knock is, a, is, is what I like to call a hood knock. You know, you go to a middle class house and you knock kind of politely, right? But you go into the hood and bang on a college dorm. You aren't doing this, are you? Hey! Open your door, man! That's how Jesus tells us to pray. Don't be coming up in here like you're in the burbs, tapping on my door, man. 
come up here and bang on my door and demand of me that my grace would be sufficient? And I'll answer. <laughs> Jesus has a little hood in him. I'm just saying. All right? I like him. I like him for that. Number one, they prayed. They prayed knowing that they were dependent. They prayed knowing who they were praying to. They prayed knowing that God could and they couldn't. And they prayed in the belief that God would, and that's why they did the second thing. Number two, they planned. They planned. First, they prayed. Number two, they planned. Peter stands up and he says, yo, we need 12 apostles and we got 11. We need to understand that if God were to answer like we're asking him to, we need to be ready to receive his grace and have leadership in place to pastor those that he brings. So they raised up leaders and they studied the scripture together. Now there's two things that I want you to note about this. My man Matthias, Matt, gets picked. And here was his vote of confidence. We cast lots and you won. <laughs> oh, thanks. What do you know about Matthias? Nothing. History tells us that he ended up in Ethiopia and that he was martyred, but the Bible is silent after this, which should be deeply, deeply encouraging to you. You know why? There was nothing special about Matthias. And yet he was chosen by God to be one of the founding apostles of the church. I think that sometimes we have this presumption that being a leader in the church means you got to stand up front and run your mouth. And you say, man, I can't do that. Or you got to be this real charismatic and boisterous personality. I don't have that. So I guess I can't be a leader. And yet Matthias was the kind of guy who was chosen based on, listen, his character. His integrity. It set him apart. I need you to understand something. Leadership isn't something that you do. It's something that you are. And it's something that you are whether you're up here or back there. And I'll tell you this. We need a lot more of you to wrap your arms around the idea of being a leader here at Damascus Road. Up here and back there. In the understanding that the qualifications for an elder in the Bible... The qualifications for a leader in the Bible are not, he's the most eloquent guy I've ever heard. He's got a magnetic personality. Nope, it's they love Jesus and have strong character. And when they influence people, they influence him toward Jesus. You know, that makes you a very substantial leader in this day and age. And we need lots and lots and lots of men and women who love Jesus and influence toward Jesus here at Damascus Road. And let me tell you why. What if God decided to double this church next week? What would we do with them? Can I tell you what we would do with them? A lot of them, we wouldn't even know they were here. That's the truth. Because we need more leaders and pastors and investors and disciplers, and less, what about me, what's in it for me, when do I get? The disciples, listen, prayed and planned. This is a novel idea. 
Not, we're just going to flow with it. And not, we're going to plan and hope God blesses it. They prayed, and then they acted like God would hear them and would act, and they wanted to be ready when he did. There's lots of different groups and different traditions that tend to spread those to either side of the room as though they're not one and the same. The foundation of the church of God and his people is a group of people who in faith and dependence and humility pray, and then in belief that God's going to do something, plan. They raised up leaders, they studied the scripture, they prayed together in the idea that what if next week God made us the kind of church that I just said I hope he does, and 150 people showed up, who would pastor them? Who would love them? Who would lead them? Who would influence them? Who would pray for them? Who would care that they're here? We have to change our understanding of what a leader in the church is. It isn't affirm me, empower me. It's character. And if you come into my gravitational pull, I'm going to point you toward Jesus based on who God's made me to be. And if that puts me at the front of the room, the middle of the room, the back of the room, or out front smoking with the smokers... I'm going to lead. Amen. <laughs> For real? The first amen I get from the left side of the room in three and a half years. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> lead where you are. Lead where you are. Let's pray and let's plan. And let's be prepared if God blesses. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 9 with me. If you got a Bible, go over there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But I want you to see something that's really important about how we understand the way that God chooses to work. Matthew chapter 9, verses 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears, I just read the same thing twice, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made, neither is new wine put in old wineskins, if it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put in fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Albert Einstein said something very biblical, unbeknownst to good old Al. To do the same thing and expect different results is... Let me give you an example of this. How many of you guys would say, I want, I want deep, significant, healthy relationships? Does your schedule make space for those new, deep, healthy relationships? I run into people all the time who, I just, I just want connection. Cool, tell me about your week. Well, I, I work, and then I come home, and I hang out with my kids, and then I go to bed. Okay, next day. Well, I work, and I... Okay, now, if God were to give you some new friends, when would you see them? You see, we, we oftentimes want God to put something new in an old way of doing it. And God says, I, I, don't, I don't do that. I change you, and then I put something new in you. That's what the disciples understood. Listen, we need more leaders and we need to be studying God's word so that we can be new wineskin if God by his grace and sovereignty sees fit to give us new wine. I want new relationships. Where would they be? 
I want better, I want, uh, I want to be more financially stable. Show me your checkbook. I want to know God better. Do you spend any time with him? You see, we want things to happen by osmosis, and God says, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. I change you, and I give you new things. I don't put old wine into new wineskins or new wine into old wineskins. I, I change both. And I wonder sometimes what God would have to change about Damascus Road. I don't mean this in a condescending way. I mean it in the, in the best, healthiest way. What would God have to change about us to give us new wine? What would God have to change about your marriage to give you new wine, your relationship to your kids at work, your finances, your view of yourself, your view of life, your view of your surroundings? What would God have to change? What would new wineskin look like? Pray and plan, pray and plan, pray and plan. That's what the disciples did. So they prayed, they planned, and then came power. See how that works? They prayed, they asked for it, they prepared as though God were going to answer, and then came power on Pentecost with Peter Piper who picked the pet. Never mind. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 through 13 is the account of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot that's been said about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And there's denominations that have come out of their understanding of that verse. You've heard of a Pentecostal, the day of Pentecost. Lots of different perspectives and lots of different ways that we can look at this. But sometimes I think that as we're looking at it, we get looking at a specific part of the painting and we forget the framework that it's in. And so before we look at Acts chapter 2, I want to tell you what Pentecost was. This isn't the first time that it shows up in the Bible. This isn't the first time that God uses Pentecost for his people and for his glory. If you're taking notes, jot down Exodus 23 and Exodus 34, and you can read more about it. But the day of Pentecost is connected to a celebration that was known as the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was the day that God, in the Jewish mindset and worldview, would have given them the wheat harvest. And so 50 days after the first day of harvest, Pentecost means 50, they would celebrate a day where they would make sacrifices and give the first fruits of God's blessing back to him. Today, our view of first fruits is that God gives you a harvest a couple times a month. It's called a paycheck. And that we give him first fruits. This is what is built into the economic system of the Jewish people. And the day of Pentecost was the day that they were all going to get together and all put in a huge pile, essentially, everything that God had blessed them with, and they were going to throw a huge party to celebrate what he had done. This was the day of Pentecost in the context of the Feast of Weeks. Now, all of these festivals had different commemorative aspects to them. And Pentecost was connected to God renewing his covenant with his people. And the first day that the Jewish people believed that he did that was when Moses went up on the Mount Sinai and got the law. In other words, the Jewish people believed that the provision of God was represented when he gave them the law and they became his people and he became their God. It was the first day of Pentecost, a day of covenant, a day when God said, you're my people and I'm your God. If you follow me, I'm going to use you to be a light to the nations. A lot of times the law is misunderstood. The law was given by God's grace to his people 
to create a particular kind of people that when people looked at those people, they said, I still have doubts, but I can't explain that. And so the Jewish people were a group of people that when you fall asleep face down reading the book of Leviticus, God is saying, this kind of people would be distinct in the midst of other kinds of people. And I give it to you because I'm in covenant with you. That was the day of Pentecost, the giving of the law, and it was celebrated during the Feast of Weeks, year after year, uh, decade after decade, century after century. You come to the book of Acts, and in the mind of a Jewish reader, it says, and on Pentecost, hello, on Pentecost, there's a new covenant in the blood of Jesus, and rather than giving his people the law, God gives his people the Spirit. And he gives them the Spirit because he's in covenant with them, and he's saying, my people who get this from me will be distinct from other kinds of people, and people will look at those Spirit-filled people and say, I still have doubts, but I can't answer that. And so the day of Pentecost is certainly the day that this whole tongues thing shows up. But that's not the point. The point is God is saying, these are my covenant people and I'm going to use them to declare my wonder to the nations, which he had just told them to do in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The other thing that you need to notice about tongues in the day of Pentecost is that yes, God is manifesting his spirit, but listen, he is also making a way for the nations to be reached. If you keep reading through, God, through Luke, lists a bunch of different nationalities, a bunch of different people come in, and they all say, how is it that I can understand this Galilean cat in my language? I'm listening to him talk about Jesus in my language. What, what is going on here? And they have this reaction. Why did God use tongues to show his spirit coming. He used it because God has a heart for all people and in all places. It's a missional manifesto. These people are people of covenant. These people who are people who bear the mark of my spirit. And I'm going to empower these people in a supernatural way to reach people that wouldn't otherwise understand them. That's what's going on right now. God's supernaturally empowering them to reach nations as he had told them to do in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so Peter, listen to me, and I, I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to be combative at all at this. Peter wasn't a Pentecostal. He wasn't looking for a spiritual experience. He loved Jesus and he was looking to reach people. He opens his mouth and he starts speaking a language that he didn't otherwise understand. And the guy in the back row goes, oh my gosh, I understood him. Tell me about this Jesus guy. This is a mission-driven thing. And God is saying to his people who his spirit is upon at the day of Pentecost, I am going to use you to reach all kinds of people. So let me end this way. Let me end with a concern. Some theologians believe that Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the people that God had created kind of band together and they say, we're going to build a tower that reaches up into the heavens and when we get there, we're going to overthrow God. 
And God says, I'm not going to let that happen. And he divides them according to what? Language. It's called the Tower of Babel. Some theologians believe that Acts chapter 2 is God using the gospel to invite them by language. He divided by language. It's redeemed and he invites them by language. But this is one wineskin that God's people have wrestled with, that the disciples wrestle with in the book of Acts. We'll look at that a little bit later. That our city wrestles with and that God's people wrestle with. And that's this, the idea that the church was never supposed to be a homogenous community. In other words, it was never supposed to look the same. Do you know that God always intended a Pentecost kind of people, a covenant kind of people, who his spirit was upon, who were deeply broken for the place that they were, to invite people from all places and from all nations who didn't look like, talk like, sound like them. And that there wasn't a barrier to that in the way that they expressed who Jesus was. It worries me, guys, and I love you, and I'm thankful for you, but it worries me that we continue to get white when our neighborhood isn't. It worries me that as progressive and evolutionary thinking as our city is, we're one of the most segregated states in the Union. And it worries me that I wonder if part of our old wineskin is that we're still not quite comfortable being a part of a community that doesn't look like what I see in the mirror. And I wonder if part of the thing that God wants to give us new wine around looks more like our neighborhood than this room. See, Pentecost isn't about tongues, guys. It's about mission. And it's about a God who uses a covenant people to reach different kinds of people from different kinds of places who go, I understood him. Tell me about this Jesus guy. And so I don't have some master plan. I'm kind of walking back, as it were. Walking back to the upper room. And I'm putting in front of you, what kind of church would we need to be to look more like the neighborhood that we're in? What would have to change? How should we pray? How should we plan? How should we act? How should we feel? How should we think about people who don't look like this? And what might God want to do as our neighborhood changes? Should we be changing with it? My plan and hope, guys, is that Damascus Road becomes the kind of place where a natural rhythm is that we pray together the same thing, hood knocking, (laughs) if I can call it that, planning in the belief that God's going to answer, trusting for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and realizing that, listen, the world is already coming to us. The question is whether or not we'll welcome them in. And the realization that bias, that pride, that this is just how we do it, is going to keep us from experiencing the fullness that we see in Acts chapter 2. The kind of church that you look at and you go, I don't have an explanation for that. I just want to be a part of it. So I'd ask you to pray with, 
to think with, to talk with. Let's not go straight to planning. Let's go first to praying. Let's say, God, what kind of church do you want us to be? In this place and in this time with us, your people, for your glory, for our joy, so that your name might be made great in this neighborhood. Stand with me. Couple ways that I'd like you to respond. Uh, we'll have folks in the back who would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'll be up front uh, afterward. If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. Um, but if you feel like you need to pray, um, that will be made available. We're going to sing and praise God for the fact that He used normal people and His Holy Spirit to reach people, and you and I are standing in the wake of that, aren't we? Yeah, because of the cross, we are recipients of the Holy Spirit work uh, that was started by the cross of Jesus. And so we do communion every week to remind ourselves of that. And, um, and so you can pray, you can participate in communion, or you can praise. But let's do that as a community.